Yes. Okay. So uh, this is the seventh uh, session of the Brain of the Firm Reading Group uh, with General Intellect Unit. And uh, this time we are talking about Chapter 7, Control Physiology. Uh, so following up on what was going on in the previous chapter, uh, we are going to be talking about physiology. Uh, it says uh, at the beginning of the section, um, <clears throat> uh, the human body is perhaps the richest and most flexible viable system of all. Beside, there is an, besides there is an extra advantage. All of us have bodies and inevitably we have a good deal of insight into their characteristics. Most people know little, however, about how it all happens. Uh, for that reason, there has to be quite a lot of explanation about the physiology of the ner nervous system. You can see why I'm not too embarrassed about putting this forward. After all, any human being is likely to find his own neurophysiology interesting, whether he's studying management or not. You will find, though, that this book continuously compares the unfolding story of corporate regulation in the body with its manifestation in the firm. This process begins in Chapter 7. Uh, so we'll begin analogizing between the body and the firm uh, in this chapter. Uh, if that is an acceptable term, uh, because as far as I can tell, he's doing analogies here, but mm -hmm. maybe I'm wrong. Uh, uh, so, um, so, uh, general, uh, comments about chapter seven, uh, Jake, go ahead. Yeah. I, I guess the main thing in chapter seven is just to keep in mind, like, like what is literary metaphor? What is analogy? Um, and like noticing the organizational invariance, as he said last week, I wasn't here for last week, so I don't know exactly what he talked about, but yeah, just making sure to keep that in your mind. Try not to reify the body example too much. Like to do that, I kept the animal ecology example in my head and thinking about the meta system there to make sure I wasn't thinking too hard in the body direction, but. Yeah, I mean, we have like three objects of reference, right? We have the computer, we have the human body, uh, and we have the firm. And those are all in play in this chapter. So you can kind of try to find the structural similarities between them um, there. And then, yeah, if you want to talk about animal ecology, that's, that's bringing in another level of, of, of thinking. Uh, Lauren, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I likewise I came away committing beer for trying to like harmonize the language of cybernetics, biology, and management because <laughs> like um, I can tell you was really trying to marry them together and explain them in a way that was digestible for anyone who didn't have those specific backgrounds. But I was ironically finding myself filtering out <laughs> some information whilst trying to read paragraphs on how brains filter information. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that was, I, I, I felt the care and effort that went into this chapter for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I felt kind of weird, weirdly lost in this chapter because um, it, was, it was weird reading a description of brain physiology from the seventies and kind of being like, well, what do we know today? I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Brett, go ahead. Well, it was exactly my point was um, it, it's hard to keep in mind that this was written in the 70s. 
uh, Wiener's work when he talks about the brain is even is even more crazy because he talks about the left, left side and right main thing and that sort of thing. And that we sort of like, well, how much of this is actually true today? But I don't think it that matters really because it's, he's using it as an analogy. Yeah, Rudy, uh, go ahead. Yeah, on that point, I think there's a Matt. very interesting phrase where he says like. It's, you can see the brain as a computer, but it's really hard to see a computer as a brain. Yeah, I thought that was one of the most interesting points that he brings up in this chapter. Uh, that, yeah, like initially people tried to think about computers as brains. And that wasn't a very good mapping. Uh, but the inverse uh, seems to be a much better mapping. Uh, so... That's going to be interesting to explore. Uh, and I believe the point... Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Ex like, exactly why Beer says that's a problem. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, uh, basically, in, in terms of, like, what what, what holds up, um, uh, um, yeah, uh, as, as, as far as I know, so, so most of it is still basically, you know, like what we understand, uh, including the part that we still don't really understand memory. Like... <laughs> Yeah, we, we, we maybe have, like, a better idea of, like, of how it works. Like, we don't really, really get it. Yeah, we still don't really understand memory. We still don't really understand sleep. We still don't really understand uh, consciousness. Um, these are all things that have eluded biology. Uh, uh, and Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, I would say that... Um one of the most important parts of this is the concept of arousal in the sense of when do the unconscious things wake up the consciousness? Because that's really going to be important when we get to the viable system model. Like things should just be chugging away, doing what they do, and it shouldn't interrupt what's happening at the command level unless something's really wrong. And I think that's a problem that nobody gets right is when do you arouse the command stack? And the thing that on page 95 where he talks about the three, um, that there's three modes. There's uh, test incoming data and recognize what action should be taken, test and recognize things that have to be filtered out and store a record of those transactions. You know, I work in hospital databases there are times where you need to alert that a patient's going to die and there's data that's happening in the pipeline that could say, wow, this person is really at risk for a bunch of factors. My software that my company makes will do things like, I think your patient is pre-diabetic, so I'm sending a text message to the PCP. Um, and all of that stuff, again, ties into algodonics in the sense of, you know, when the when the pain gets too high, shoot up the spinal cord and the, the organizational version of that. I think that's some really crucial stuff in this chapter is when do you do it? When do you ignore it? Because you have to ignore almost everything or you just can't function. Right. So uh, just to kind of jump into the chapter a bit here, um, we – initially uh, get the sort of description of how the uh, afferent and efferent systems map onto the body. Um, we get uh, 
the talk about the uh, spinal cord and the sort of like lateral uh, coordination as well as vertical coordination. Um, I think that's quite important. Uh, you know, I think the most interesting thing to me there was that the vertical uh, connection through the spinal cord is very uh, visible, uh, but the, the lateral ones are much less visible. And uh, similarly, I think in organizations, we have the same problem where the, the, the bottom to top connections are often quite uh, articulate and the, the lateral connections are very unclear. Um, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, this, this stuff's very important, right? Because um, I, I was especially struck by the description of like the, the spinal column as an anastomotic reticulum, right? Like we still have this input, weird shit, output sort of pattern, right, going on. And um, when you think of it that way, like it's, it's it, as you said, it's, very, it's usually very obvious to think of the, the vertical alignment of that, that like, oh, it's as if there were two cables, one goes up to the brain and one goes down again. And that, that is a feature of the spinal column. But the, it, the way Beer describes it here is that like the, the, the two plates are actually the front and back of the spinal column as well, right? Like that there's, there's, there's this like input network output stuff all up and down going, going crossways which is something that we, you don't usually think about, right? Like, um, it very much reminded me of that, um, the diagram of, like, the ideal vertebrate organism, which is a tube with, like, a, a front and a back side and stuff like that. And we, we tend to think of things in this kind of, like, lateral thing of, like, there's the head and the tail ends, right? There's the cephalic kind of bias that we have. We, we tend to identify heads as being extremely meaningful. But there's also this kind of, like, partitioning front to back, like a crossways, which is usually not the kind of thing we pay attention to because it doesn't have that kind of like cephalic character to it. It's not head-like. We just have this weird bias in our senses of like paying attention to heads as, uh, as being very important. But all, the, all this kind of cross-connection stuff tends to melt away for us often. Right. So uh, describing the sort of ideal vertebrate, um, I guess when you map that onto the human form, you have to take into account the way in which um, the brain sort of forms a part of a cycle. Uh, so it, it's, it's not actually a terminus. The, the actual physiology as opposed to the anatomy is much more circular mm-hmm. rather than uh, vertical and, yeah, and as you said, lateral. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's that's an interesting point. Uh, Lauren, uh, please go ahead. Yeah, I think I'm, what Shane was saying to me really highlighted like the the fruits that we got from the chapter we were promised in the chapter prior about how bad the org chart is because um, the org chart doesn't have any of that in it, uh, like no connections laterally, that none of that to show like how everything's tied together, and like it really shouldn't because it would be messy and hard to read. Um, but it, it really illustrated and maybe reflect upon my experience working in organizations where um, you get that sort of anatomy of the org chart, so you know how it's set up, but then how much compensation has to go into that lateral communication, like through onboarding. Like I remember sitting down with like the uh, HR person who was like, okay, so this is how you need to talk to this boss, and this is how you need to talk to that boss, and this is how you need to talk to that boss, and like this is how you need to go do for this. And it's like, there's just so much like um, 
to yeah compensate for that is very inefficient <laughs> and a lot of it is like sort of internally um held on to and that's we get those issues with people in chapter the previous chapter being in this organization for like seven plus years and having all of that internal knowledge but it not being able to be replicated or repurposed um in the org structure when they move on and stuff right right uh yeah it's it's very like sort of not not tacit but unrepresented knowledges of coordination uh jake go ahead yeah just a quick comment on the org thing <laughs> um i was once in an organization w- which didn't even have the like obvious who you speak to thing it was a matrix organization um there was one person like that you were supposed to speak to but it wasn't even clear who that was um so it didn't even have the benefit of like having the you know the one like person above you in the tree <laughs> okay so like it was it was like a network system kind of like it was was structured like a starfish or something i don't know it it was like a rigid network basically a rigid network it's like beer's net example in the designing freedom thing Um, all right interesting okay that sounds that sounds bad um Okay, uh, so um, there's this whole discussion of anatomy that comes up next. Um, I think one thing that is interesting and kind of gross about this discussion here is uh, that Beer describes um, anatomy in very active terms. So like everything's kind of like growing and like folding and you know, uh, swelling. And it, it's like the whole like sort of growth process of the human organism is represented in Beer's language. Whereas we tend to like to reify these things in our typical descriptions of anatomy, uh, maybe because it, it sort of like distances us somewhat from the reality of our own fleshy existence. Um, but yeah, uh, I, that was my only real takeaway from this was like, yeah, there's this really active uh, process language that is quite unsettling. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, definitely. It's like the it's like the end of Akira or something. It just has this this very unpleasant sort of character to it. There's something there's, there's something very interesting there about that. Like there's a kind of somatic realism to to Beer's kind of thing, right? He kind of accepts the the active and lively characteristics of matter, and that the organism is an extension of those characteristics. Like that matter is generally active. Um, and it happens to take on this disgustingly active kind of character when it gets to uh, it gets to this sort of level, right? Um, I mean, I, f- I found this this uh, this section was. I mean, a lot of the chapter is just kind of you know it's all kind of familiar to us, right? Um, but it is interesting how he kind of breaks down the the structure of the brainstem, uh, particularly as like there's there's all these kind of like sub coprocessor bits, and it's sometimes a little bit clearish what they're sort of doing but then there's all these kind of effects that emerge from the interaction of them where it's not really clear at all so you're kind of like i think again we have this kind of you know typical way of seeing of like okay there's organs and there's the the spinal column then there's the lower brain midbrain and high brain very linear but even then when you look at the kind of lower midbrain sections they're kind of you know cross connected in strange ways and it's not super clear that there's a a, a kind of direct linear vertical pathway. Um, so there's, there's a lot of complication emerging here and a lot of kind of like, well, you know, this this part seems to do this thing and this other part seems to do another thing. 
but then when both of them act in conjunction with this other thing, a different thing happens and it's all, it's all quite complex. Um, uh, I mean, I guess, is there much to really say about the kind of, um, the physiology stuff here? I mean, I think it's probably all very familiar to us, right? Uh, you know, I think it may be interesting to revisit once we've looked at the VSM. Like there's the whole mapping that Beer does at the end of this chapter of uh, physiology onto five echelons, which is going to form the basis for the VSM. Uh, so I think returning to that may be interesting later on. But at this present moment, it is very first year psych uh, stuff. Uh, and I, I guess the only thing I had to say about that sort of like, uh, you know, inter that sort of like uh, interconnected nature of all these like subsystems um is you can look at all always the other the other first year psych thing which is looking at brain damage and compensatory responses by the brain uh and how subsystem tasks can be like grown uh by other parts of the brain to some extent not perfectly obviously like you know you have uh very severe spinal cord damage and you're screwed, right? Like that's, that's not going to heal itself. Uh, but there are many parts of the brain that can, that can take over tasks from other parts. And, and the brain is also like often like changing quite a bit over time too, uh, in terms of what is emphasized, what, what aspects are powerful. So I like, I like beers, very like active descriptions here. Um, uh, especially I, I, I like the, uh, the way he describes how like the, the brain is sort of like extruded from the spinal cord. <laughs> that was a very good way to, uh, emphasize the connection. Uh, okay. Let's go to Lauren and then Matt. Oh, I think Matt was first. <laughs> okay. Matt, go ahead. Uh, you're still muted, Matt. Oh uh, yeah, um, uh, um, is, is have, have like a quick, like really, like weird example of of the plasticity there of like uh, so sometimes someone will get um in in some in some kind of uh, um, accident, you know, like they'll have some brain damage and then they'll slur their speech, but then uh, they'll get a little bit more of that section removed because like there was scarring or whatever, and then they and, th and then it, they got enough damage for the brain to heal itself, and now they don't slur their speech anymore. <laughs> like it's uh, uh, th 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 that's. That, 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 that's something also that like, I feel like you could really explore with this framework that, mm -hmm. you know, well, well, that is still a mystery. Like we do not, that is not understood. Yeah. It's kind of like a algodonic threshold is being tripped and then the brain is activating a compensatory response. Uh, maybe. No. Uh, <laughs> at least from this framework, it seems that way. Uh, Laura, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to get back to compensatory examples. Like what really stuck out to me was every single year at this company I worked at, we would have a week or two on how to communicate with each other. Cause like we all secretly hated each other and like hated the job. So communication wasn't that fluid across like either laterally or vertically. <laughs> um, and every year we would do like Myers-Briggs um, communication exercises to see how we can talk better to each other. And like sort of countless communication diagnoses to see where, how we could be more efficient. And it just, that really, to me, I was like, oh my God, that was us really trying to compensate for our shitty structure <laughs> um, to find ways to like uh, enhance those organizational filters to make sure information got to the right place in the most efficient way possible. Um, 
and uh, uh, that, that came to my mind. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, you know, there is, like, you kind of get the sense in Beer's example how uh, the filters, which is the next thing that comes up, uh, like, work to the benefit of the human organism. Uh, but of course, something we see in organizations very frequently uh, is that the filtering is actually <laughs> destructive. Uh, you know, famous example being in the Soviet Union, uh, lots of sort of micro filtering uh, for lot like you know sort of game theoretic logical outcomes for the actors but at a system level is incredibly maladaptive uh shane go ahead yeah um so i think this this uh there's something interesting on page 92 like in kind of weaved in with this sort of thing before we get onto the filtering bit um that the notion that the the cortex is isolated and the the nervous system and the brainstem mediate the, between the body and the cortex. And that's very interesting, right? Because you've got like this information transference upwards uh, from the organs and so on through the nervous system to the cortex, which is kind of in its own little pocket universe in a way. Um, but that's kind of layered, right? Because, I mean, you've got uh, the, the question that, like, if, if, if the nervous system mediates information transfer into the cortex, what does the cortex mediate? And I think it mediates sociality. So that, like, Information flows up to the cortex, and that's it's mediated on its way there. But then the cortex is its own mediation with a much wider, uh, extended cognitive network, which is sociality. Um, and I think there's there's kind of step changes of quality along the way there, right? Like because um, this this goes down to the cellular level even, right? Like um, at each at each way we have this like aggregation of active matter engagements. Um, being mediated upwards into a different different structure, which takes on a different kind of behavior. And I think that keeps on going. So that's worth kind of pondering, right? Like our, our cortexes are kind of the equivalent of the brainstem for mediating a kind of collective intelligence. Um, that, that kind of jumped out at me there in amongst this sort of uh, physiological description. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, I mean, many people hypothesize that our cortexes are as you know sophisticated as they are for social reasons um and i i think that's probably a reasonable thing to state but uh to view the cortex as the brainstem for the the uh social uh, i think is uh, a very uh, good way to put it um matt go ahead I, 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 two things. One is that, you know, uh, for like organizational stuff, yeah, like really thinking about how little like peer to peer, you know, how little horizontal connection there actually is. And like, I think it's just, you know, that, that, that's probably, a, if not necessarily intentional, like, because uh, how could you architect like that uh, a sort of thing? I think it's the result of the selective pressures prioritizing labor discipline over efficiency. And uh, uh, you know, I, I remember like like uh, the the the, the Chapo bit about how 
um, American suburban society was basically created to recreate, you know, the the French small holding peasants in the 18th of Brumaire who don't, you know, who who, who every everything is vertical, like you know, every you know everything is hierarchy. You know, you don't really have much peer to peer versus like factory workers who you know work alongside each other and talk to each other and then you know go go, uh, go to the same bar together and then you know go back to the same neighborhood. You know, like like you, American society was created to be like very atomized because yeah, it's a it's it's about you know um, uh, maintaining command and control over necessarily being effective. Um, uh, um, what, 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 what's it? Um, uh, I, I forgot the second. Uh, Maybe I'll get back to it. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and where, where does that leave us today? Uh, <laughs> even more itemized. Uh, you know, my, my dad lives in the suburbs uh, and he at least knows the people on his street. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's real. There, there are, there are a lot of like sort of levels of atomization, but I think your overall point stands for sure. Uh, and then Jake, you had, uh, something to add? Yeah. I wasn't sure how relevant it was or not. That's where the hand kept going up and down. (laughs) Um, but on Shane's point about maybe sociality and, corporativity as being like the highest level. I don't know if exactly that was what Shane was saying, but like the highest level of uh, reason, basically. Um, there's, I, I did an agent-based systems course once, and there was this like agent architecture called Interrep, and like cooperative planning is the very top thing. Um, and there's this quote I have here just to quickly read. Um, so the lowest layer deals with reactive, the middle deals with everyday planning, and the uppermost deals with like social interactions and cooperative planning. Right? Um, and then at each layer, you're supposed to represent like a specific knowledge base with different ontologies. So the lower level one has pretty like raw data. And then the top level one has like relational information about like this person lives, loves this person or, you know, like social things and how we cooperatively plan. And then the middle one is like everyday planning information. Um, and so the lower one like says up like, um, like I need to delegate to you. Um, and then of course, like the higher level, the social layer um, has... Inf- like particular kind of ontological information that it can't act immediately on the world because it doesn't represent things at that level. So it has to speak down to the lower la- levels, like, translate this into like a plan of action, right? I have the, this broad goal of like a uh, former union or whatever. And you just kind of <laughs> imagine that, but in a brain <laughs> um, and then like pushing that down to like the lower level things. Um, yeah, so yeah. different levels of abstraction for the different tasks, right? I mean, that, that definitely maps with what we've been discussing so far. Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and especially that point about the upper level being essentially uh, separated from any immediate contact. Um, uh, okay, so let's move on. Um, so we have the filtering discussion. Um, you know, there is, uh, the, the discussion of how filtering is essential because if we didn't have filtering, we couldn't function. There is, um, the discussion of basically compression, uh, data compression going, going up. Um, and, um, we have the discussion of the arousal function that Jeremy mentioned earlier, um, 
So what, what do people uh, think about this, this part here? Uh, Shane, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> I thought the, the, the description sort of like the lower half of page 93 was quite interesting because um, you've got, uh, what is it? The first task is to inspect the information coming up to see whether it's appropriate to deal with at this level. So do you need to take action at this level, yes or no? And I've, I've drawn out a little kind of decision chart in the, nar- the margin notes here. But on the yes branch, you have two possible actions, which is uh, issue action or pass along a modified version of the signal uh, and on the no branch you have uh, filter the signal or combine the signal with some other stuff right um, and you might think hey there's an obvious term there that's missing which is to pass on an unaltered version of the signal which is I think the reason it's absent um, or it, t- it tends to not happen very much is that uh, it's probably not all that useful because uh, I think on the on the way nervous stuff works is that other things can just tap into the same the same line. They don't actually have to like you don't have to pass the message along. But it's also worth calling back to um, uh, the previous I think it's chapter five with the, that shitty fucking machine that he made. Um, but when we when we look at that machine, that machine takes in a high variety of input. It takes in ten thousand possible states, and purely due to its structure, it reduces variety. Like it's it's not actually possible for it to not reduce that variety. Like it's it takes in ten thousand states and it spits out sixteen. Um, I think that is always going to be true of these kinds of structure systems where the behavior is structural. That it's not actually possible for the thing to pass on an unmodified signal. Like purely by by passing through the thing, it would alter the signal. Um, so I, I thought that was kind of maybe one to call out there because it's, it's, it jumps out as an obvious, hey, look, there's, there's a missing option here, which is passing on modified one. I think these structural things always modify, and they, they have to because there's if it didn't modify anything, then it wouldn't actually be there, right? Like it, if it's not doing anything, it's not actually present, um, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, not... Um, if it didn't uh, reduce variety in some way, it wouldn't really be a structural function according to what beer is described about structure. Um, uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah. 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 Um, um, yeah Cause lo- like the things that it's talking to, lo- like it has to have like a lower, yeah. Lo- like a, infer- or really just a different kind of representation. Yeah. Pro- probably lo- like lower detail. And, uh, um, uh, and yeah, the, the, uh, it's, it's part of way. Like um, I just kind of turn away from any leftist stuff that you know is predicated on like mediation being the thing that we're going after no i mean like fundamentally like there's no such thing as unmediated like it's in the very structure of your brain and so like anything that's talking about like mediation is the enemy or you're like that's that's like the primary goal of a communist like uh, like that's no that, that, that that's nonsense that, that that's meaningless um um also yeah I'm with you on that definitely and like i think it's at the very minimum i think at its absolute limit it would be like bouncing light off a mirror that like at a very minimum it will diminish the light signal somewhat simply because of the the physical interaction like there's there's no way to have these things be be actual patterns of matter in the world and not have them influence the information that's passing through them uh so yeah everything's mediated like if you're you're looking at light it's mediated through your eyes and so on it's uh, it's just not really computationally feasible for things to be unmediated uh, Lauren, go ahead, please. <clears throat> I might be jumping. I haven't read the other chapters. I'm very excited for them, though. Uh, having read this one, um, since uh, I bring that filtering back to like being in a being in an organization um, and how 
much that filtering in my experience has been very inherent or like learned on the job kind of thing um, where you learn how people like to receive information and then you can kind of like accommodate it to suit um, thinking particularly of sort of like that vertical communication between sort of like subordinates and bosses um, and how much easier that would have been if people had set expectations around like, okay, this is how, like, this is who, <laughs> this is like what you need to say to the CEO. Like I had a CEO who said, I will not read an email if you do not include the action item in the first sentence. <laughs> um, you hate getting emails that are like, hey, like, and I'm very, I get, I, like, I'm an ENFP. I'm like, hey, I hope you're well, like, just passing on this thing. And then, like, I'm very person forward. And he was like, I hate that. I don't like that. Like, I will not read your emails if you do that. Um, and so that, that was, like, quite blunt, but helpful for setting, filtering expectations. <laughs> um, so, I'm, yes, very excited to see what the future chapters have to say about um, mapping that onto. Um, businesses and stuff. Yeah, uh, it it is it is quite blood, but um, it also makes sense that like you know, assuming you have that kind of hierarchical structure of executives and staff and line and all that, like the executive cannot maintain a personal relationship with everyone in the organization. It's just structurally impossible. Uh, so that. You know, maybe there's a problem with one person doing that executive task, uh, and that needs to be examined. Uh, but it does make sense coming from their position why they would just want action items, uh, because you know we only got so many, so many uh, minutes in the day. Um, yeah, he would also he would also be like, oh, I, I need you to I need you to flag if you're brainstorming with me, if you're coming to me with an idea, and like instead of categorize like all of the things that you could bring to him. Um, that was, that was how I managed it, yeah. Right. And, like, Google has tried to do this with their, like, Gmail system, right, where they categorize emails for you automatically. Um, because we're all kind of in that position of, like, being information uh, being in information overload and needing some structure to what we get because this is too much, uh, even though... This is just our personal relationships. It doesn't have anything to do with being an executive or an executive of our own lives, I guess. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, anyway, internet stress. Um, uh, yeah. So let's 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 move on uh, to um, you know. There's a t discussion of noise uh, that we kind of didn't talk about, but I think it's okay. Um, Are we thinking like page 94 with arousal? That's probably the next big one. Yeah, I mean, are there things here that... So maybe one thing to talk about is uh, the bottom of page 94. Uh, we mm -hmm. should not think of a filter simply as an inhibitor where it, by a lot of data, is stopped or reduced. It can also be a facilitator if it allows only certain kinds of messages to pass through and stops or inhibits the others. So that's exactly what Lauren was describing, right? Like, give me give me an, an, a message that's too noisy and I'm going to shut it out. Um, uh, there seems to be no one sight. Uh, there's no special purpose nuclei so far defined. That's an interesting point that Beer dwells on quite a bit, is that we don't have a special uh, subsystem for managing arousal. It's general to the system, whereas many of these other things are specialized. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. 
Yeah, by reading Beer's writings around the year 2000, he begins to talk about holograms and saying that the consciousness is holographic and that therefore it's not located in any particular part, but it's distributed throughout the entire. Yeah, that that is very interesting to like see like both arousal and consciousness as having that property. Uh, Jake, go ahead. Yeah, I was just wondering if the filtering process can also be thought of as like translating between meta languages as well. Like in the example I gave earlier with the kind of reactivity layer that has its own meta language, right, which is low level. And then the social cooperative layer has its own meta language. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that kind of architecture, right? It could be more holistic, more interrelated and complex. But, um, yeah, I sort of, I was primarily thinking about meta language translation when I was thinking about filtering, but I guess it could just be reduction as well. Yeah, I mean, that again, that might be inherent to the ontology of the meta-language, um, that it just can't understand uh, a thing that might be parsable at a lower level, but would just appear as noise at a higher level. Um, uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I think the... Uh... <clears throat> The point about the meta languages is very good, right? That, that that would definitely be as you climb the ladder of meta languages, you're kind of losing detail or you're combining detail in different ways, right? Um, but yeah, the, the whole thing of like the, the filter not being an inhibitor, it's a facilitator thing, um, is very, very important, right? And I think it, tur it turns a lot of our kind of expectations on our head, especially when we get to like the back two, the back page or back two pages of this chapter, where he's going on about like the just colossal variety of what's going on at the lower levels, right? There's so much happening um, that it's it's really impossible for it all to bubble up, right? And so we shouldn't think of the filters as like the upper layers being denied the information they crave. In fact, it's a service being done that like the the lower levels are taking care of all that shit for, on their own, and they're, you just don't need to know about it, right? Like, um, so it's like. Kind of pushing pushing the orientation downwards, right? Like you're kind of like valorizing the the pr productivity of the lower levels and the the sheer explosive variety of what the, that they handle, and uh, you know not not really craving an information flood to to come upwards to you. Like it's uh, you, you don't need the cortex to be aware very much for things to work, you know. Yeah, I mean, Beer certainly talks in designing freedom about how important that is. Right. And saying, like, we're designing computer systems wrong because they're trying like the managers are trying to get flooded with information, which is going to be completely useless to them. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess with the caveat, like, you know, what you said with the caveat that this is a functional system, this is a viable system because <laughs> it's not a given that uh, the, the that the filtering is uh necessarily working to the ends that the the uh top would like um uh jeremy go ahead yeah i mean there's a tension between beer's advice and how corporations actually run in late capitalism where the you see a lot of ceo speak business school speak saying I wish our workers were more autonomous. I wish they knew exactly what to do and they just did their work without asking us and without guidance. But then when they do it, 
the control system completely freaks out at that at the terror of that idea that <laughs> the workers can manage themselves. So there's this weird push and pull going on where there's a lot in the discourse about higher general purpose people who are generalists who know how to do lots of things and wear lots of different hats. But when people do wear lots of different hats and are capable of doing lots of different things, there's a lot of pushback because of fundamental assumptions about how control is supposed to work in a corporation, which have really nothing to do with viability. Right. Uh, definitely. Shane, go ahead. I just uh, that, that that that's all exactly true, right? And I think it's um, uh, I kind of like the kind of analogizing that goes on with um, the kind of like psychoanalysis stuff of like the corp- bourgeois ideology is inherently paranoid. It's uh, that co- corporations are paranoia machines, or that they're at their best, they're kind of split between like a schizoid and paranoid model, where they're they're fragmentary but also like hypervigilant and and panopticon like. Um, it's just to say that like. Uh, you know, sort of mental illness can be instituted at, at higher levels than the individual. <laughs> There's, there are pathological thought patterns that emerge in group settings um, that, that are kind of reflective of the pathological thought patterns we have as individuals. Right. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's interesting. Um, I think we need to dive into that a lot more. And hopefully we'll have an opportunity to later in this reading group. But yeah, it, it like that is an interesting phenomenon uh, in terms of the sort of character of um, the corporate world and late capitalism. Um, because you you might think that the the, the original uh, early capitalist consciousness would be more paranoid more more paranoiac more paranoid rather than schizophrenic um and, and it's, it's a later development that it, it develops that kind of schizoid in the, the psychoanalytic sense uh, mentality we're gonna have um, to read anti-edipus someday you know <laughs> yeah 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 that's what the whole dance is about <laughs> yeah 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 like Absolutely, is trying to understand post sixty eight society. So, uh, uh, okay, well let's let's move on, Lauren. Um, oh yeah, uh, this is my gender comment of the week. Uh, this is, I think this is where a lot of like sort of corporate gaslighting can come in. Like I, I've had experiences where the filtering system in a, in a sort of that hierarchical institution has been used to really gaslight and. Um, like abuse people, <laughs> where it's whether it's like a matter of oh, this is your, this is your responsibility. Like you are autonomous. You should be able to do it. And then you, you don't do it. And then you get punished for it. Or that decision is like retroactively taken back during the process. Or like, there's no, yeah. Like I, I, that just, I'm now just processing where the like, corporate gaslighting comes from. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. The, you know, the, the, it's, it's very much like having it both ways is the way that, management seems to operate where it's like autonomy when it's useful and uh subordination when it's useful and the the consistency of those the application of those principles isn't thoroughgoing it's what's really what's really uh <laughs> uh consistently applied is 
the convenient thing to do to maintain worker discipline. Um, so, you know, both of these things are used towards that end. Uh, um, uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think in a lot of cases, management just wants to be disciplining. Like, and so, and so, so it is just, you know, a purely contrarian, like, you know, duck season, rabbit season type thing. We're like, yeah, like, no matter what you're going to do, like, you know, like, they, 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 like, because they think their job is to push you in in one direction or another. So there's actually no right move, you know. And one, one of the things I've seen Beer um, and Taylor complain about, actually, is uh, um, uh, just that, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, ma ma managers, like, you know, hearing about, like, a different way of doing stuff and then thinking, like, oh, then, then like, what, what am you yeah, what, what am I even here for? Like, uh, yeah, and what are you even there for? <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, sometimes that's that's a very good question. Um, and one that they wouldn't want to dwell on too much. Uh, okay. So <laughs> moving on. Uh, we have the discussion about... Um, yeah. Okay. And then there's that the the uh, three tasks that uh, Jeremy mentioned earlier uh, that are both um, a characteristic of the central command axis and of the specialized controllers. They all have to do this thing. Uh, test incoming data. Recognize any on which command action should be taken take that action and send on the original information suitably modified, um, test and recognize any data that have to be filtered at this level, compressing, facilitating, inhibiting the ascending path. Um, so essentially, I think, Shane, uh, the third option that you are describing is the compression option. Uh, the pass-through option is the compression option, uh, which is not to say you get a one-to-one but you get a fair approximation of, of the input data. Uh, you, know, you, like get, we, you get the information you care about, right? Like you yeah. get the, some kind of compressed form, but it maintains the spirit of what you're actually after. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's like you have compression artifacts and stuff, but like your higher levels have the capacity to um, find the signal in the noise and aggregate that information because they're probably getting similar data from many different sources and then they can aggregate it just like, you know, we do with whatever TV screens, right? Our eyes do that. Um, okay. Uh, so, so that's interesting. Uh, but it is of course, nonetheless unmodified, uh, or sorry, modified, not unmodified. Um, and, uh, uh, third creed, you had something to say? Yeah. You, you might have to do some, hold on, I'm so uh, so sorry. Uh, no you might have to do some translation for me because I, I I may not be expressing this well, but I guess it's a it's a point of confusion. It's like when when the when the lower orders are talking to the higher orders, they translate to it via uh, as Shane was describing a structure that evolved, you know, where you know it's somehow came to be and like the 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 but so it's it's a character in the whole description that I'm often getting confused about, which is the the operations researcher who is constructing the translation service. So like one of the pieces of knowledge is how to have a model of the, the higher order or how the, where the 
higher order gets its model of the lower order in order to send information. But that piece of knowledge isn't something that belongs either to the higher order or to the lower order. And it need it. I've never seen, or I, I don't understand at least how it's embedded into the system. Like, is it embedded? You know what I mean? Or that the, 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 like, if I was going to translate from English to Spanish, for example, that's a special skill. It's, English to Spanish translation, you know, it's not either of those things. And even worse when I'm translating, you know, if I was translating between, you know, fish and, and birds or something, you know, get more and more different, you know, those special skills, where do they reside and how does the system think about them? And I'm not sure if it's entirely relevant here, but maybe you can make some sense of my question. And yeah, like, um, I think that we can kind of see these things as sort of like inbuilt affordances of the higher layer in terms of like what senses they have, like what they can sense and recognize. That's mm-hmm. already kind of the model. Um, if we want to think about it, though, as an operations researcher uh, and how they interact with this, um I guess you have to think about like education as a kind of mutation, right? Like you mutate through your education into a kind of organism that sees these things. Um, and, uh, you know, there's also that idea of meta languages, right? That beer brought up earlier in the linguistic sense. So, um, you know, uh, Spanish to English is a translation that you can kind of improvise. Uh, if you have a knowledge of both of them, you can do interpretation. Uh, if you want to get to a meta language of those two, uh, then you are probably going to be looking at something like linguistics, uh, which is not itself a language. It's, 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 it's purely meta linguistic. Um, so, well, not purely, but you know, it, 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 you can't learn linguistics and then use that as your language. And if you did, it would degenerate from being what it originally was. Um, okay. Uh, any, anything uh, other people have to say? I hope that was helpful. Uh, Jeremy. Yeah. Yeah. Beer talks about this in his first book, Cybernetics and Management, where he talks about a situation where you have – actually, I've got it right open right here <laughs> – um, so he draws a diagram of operational research and he has a situation where there's one column that's real life and there's a box called actual factors. And then there's another column that says control mechanism and between actu- actual factors reaches out to what the operational research model will be. And then there's also actual production and that reaches out to the plan. And the idea is the operational research scientists look at the actual factors and then they create a plan. And that plan goes and affects how actual production works. But then he throws in a curveball and says, okay, what happens if the plan gets altered after the operational research people leave? They don't know what decision-making went on to create the plan, they have no access to operational research 
And by changing the plan, they've changed the entire structure. And the only way to fix that is to stick a black box between the model and the plan. And that black box is going to be written in a meta language this system cannot possibly understand. And, you know, I think it's one reason why companies get stuck. And then their response is, let's hire someone from McKinsey to tell us what to do. They know what to do, but they don't have within their system what to do is undecidable. And so they create a meta language like McKinsey or Deloitte to come in and tell them something. They go, ooh, we paid McKinsey a lot of money. This must be the right thing to do. And that creates the black box for them. And you have to have that to create homeostasis. If you don't have it, things just fly off the rails. But it's a particularly unimaginative way to go about it by bringing in one of your typical consultants from one of those typical companies. You can do that in-house as long as you have an understanding of a meta-language in there. Yeah, just I think on a, a sort of, I think the other side of that, um, the sort of set of questions there about like the uh, structure structure of like translation and like information propagation and how it gets reduced and so on. Um, in this book, uh, Beer is focusing on this biological analogy, but in the, um, the companion volume, Heart of the Enterprise, he actually goes with a slightly different take. And he uses the word transducer to describe a lot of these things. And uh, transducers that we know in the world are like microphones and speakers and such. Um, and they, they have information translation, like there's sound waves out there they hit the microphone and they get translated or uh, transduced, whatever the fuck, into electrical signals. And looking at it, looking at those kind of physical examples, it's like, of course, because how could it not? It's it's the structure of the microphone that determines the translation. And uh, it, it also determines the way that variety is reduced. Because, I mean, information is always lost in one of these transductions. Uh, you don't actually get a perfect replica of the sound waves. You couldn't possibly. Because, again, look at the structure of the damn thing. Um, but the structure of the thing determines how much information you get like um is the microphone a fucking piece of shit like is it gonna is it gonna sound terrible you know like does it just not represent frequencies above a certain um certain frequency and so on um or like maybe a more a more crude example is like a cheese grater like a cheese grater is a structure you push cheese through that it's going to do a particular thing and it it does it purely imminently in its own structure um now Human psychic and social systems don't have the kind of, I guess, the the upside of just being imminently represented physically, but there's some, something similar going on there, right? That the structure, uh, the structure of like what the person, as I think as Kyle mentioned, like the learning that they've had will determine a lot of the way they translate things, right? Like so, one of those one of those goons from uh, Deliot or whatever these fucking consulting firms is going to have a very particular take on things, right? Like the variety is reduced in a certain way through this, that they're, they're acting as a microphone. Um, you know, they're, they're transducing information in very particular ways because of the structure their brain has taken on. Um, so just keep, keep the transducers in mind. That's basically what we're getting at here. That's like structure itself can do work for you by just pushing energy through it. If you push energy through a structure, it will transform that energy. Yeah, you know, it's it's like a river delta or something like that. Um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I had something to say, but I'm, I'm going to pass it on to Rudy. 
Just to talk a bit about what Jeremy was saying of McKinsey and other corporations, I think that the analogy is very useful. At the same time, I feel like McKinsey benefits from the fact that managers don't want to listen to their workers because it's an authority thing, and they they regret losing that authority while, you know, well-suited people coming in while you're paying them millions of dollars to sign a bullshit report is very different. There's still that authority of the rabble is kept down if McKinsey comes in and tells you what to do. I think Bia really gets at in, at in designing freedom lecture and say like, well, computers come up until it actually challenges authority, then they don't get used. Right. Uh, and, you know, this is like the historical materialist uh, explanation for why we have priests. Right. Um, <laughs> what you just described there. Already. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, it's, it's that that halo or aura of authority uh, that that is sort of the representation of a meta language um, in, in, inscrutable to the uh, lower levels. Um, <sighs> yeah, OK, well, uh, that was let, helpful. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I think that was a, definitely a good conversation to have. Um Okay, so am I? No, let's continue on there. Uh, we get to this discussion of memory, uh, which was the third thing. Uh, notably, memory isn't as in a uh, like, you know, memory isn't really as we often represent it in a computer. Uh, although that's an oversimplification of how computers work, stored in storage or memory like the 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 long-term hard disk storage right it's not like there's the memory spot and it goes in there and that's where all the memory is and you can take you know a hard disk out of a computer and you put a different one in and it has completely different memories of what's happened um that's not how our memory works um it's much more diffuse than that uh beer hypothesizes um, that the, the, maybe there, there are like chemical remnants that are stored at various levels of the body and can be recalled when necessary. Um, so, you know, which is more similar to like the way it's like, oh yeah, well, if you look at a running computer, you're going to have memory in your bus, you're going to have memory in your GPU in the video memory in your, uh, in your random access memory uh, in storage, uh, in the CPU's compute task, like it's cache, uh, like actually it's everywhere. Uh, but when you turn it off, you have the long-term memory, uh, which is maybe more like history or something. I don't know, or external memory we have. Uh, okay. Um, Matt third creed, uh, we'll, yeah, I, I, uh, uh, quickly on, on the memory stuff, uh, so this, this is really um, the part that actually is like a little bit outdated because he says that um, uh, um, like everything like gets stored. And um, now that we know, now we know that's actually not true. Like memory is an active process. Like, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, if a cop interrogates you the right way, you actually will remember running the red light. Like, uh, uh, yeah, what, like it, it's probably closer to something like um, um, how they do video where there, there are keyframes and there are delta frames. It's probably, yeah, but yeah, like there are little things that are seeds and then, you know, like they can get reconstructed and reblown up. Yeah. Uh, it's, it kind of reminds me of how like on really old 
uh, video games, they couldn't actually store. Um, they couldn't actually store all the data on disk. Uh, so they wrote an algorithm that would generate the appropriate data from a seed. So it's like there's the seed, there's the algorithm that works on it, and then your machine is going to generate on demand what was there uh, because you can't actually store the data verbatim uh, on disk and use it. Um, uh, Third Creed, go ahead. I was just going to say it, it was so much like some of the structure-defining memory. It's like when 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 RAM, you know, the, the flip-flops, they just – they flopped a certain way in the past, and now they're flopped that way. Or like a river delta, as you were saying, or water. Go- it just it now it's in that structure, and the memory is being diffuse as being like the structure is now what it is. And when you when you run the substance through it, it'll it'll become what it's supposed to be. But then there's also that um, like conscious history writing process, or or like relationship with the past, where you're trying to. To, uh, and so there's like both the structural institutional memory and then there's the in, the conscious institutional memory where you go back and, and write your history about your or revise that and they both kind of exist and are often in tension with each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, you know, we can see history in some ways is like or like, you know, social sense making uh, as being like an attempt to deal with the deficiencies of our memory that Matt brought up. Um, they're not perfect, but they're an attempt. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Uh, yeah, this, there's one sort of very interesting angle on this, uh, this memory thing from a computational angle, right? Like an information theoretic angle. Uh, and it's actually related to what you just described, Kyle, with the generative algorithms, right? That like, if you have a given lump of data, um, there is probably a combination of an algorithm and a seed that is information or informationally equivalent but might be a lot smaller. So uh, basically, like you can have you have this huge block of data, but instead of storing the damn thing, you can store the algorithm that would generate the data, and it can often be that that algorithm is a lot smaller. So the digits of pi are a seemingly infinite size, uh, and yet you can write an algorithm in a couple of lines of Python. So you have a choice between infinite bits or, you know, a couple of bytes. You know, <laughs> like which one of those do you want to store? You want to store that one. This gives us some kind of insight into how this kind of compression goes goes about happening, right? Like, how is it that you actually get this much detail out of something that appears to be fairly small? Um, it turns out that, like, informationally, you can do a lot of really tricky stuff to kind of store equivalent terms um, or store and then recombine equivalent terms that are, like, equivalent to massively larger sets of data. Um, so it's, it's not the case that the, the, the brain is just juggling all the data raw. It's probably generated it juggling some bizarre, like compressed representations that are encoded in, in chemical strands. Um, but they're, they're information theoretically equivalent. It's kind of fucking weird, you know? Right. 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 Um, yeah. And I mean, I guess the, the main thing there is like, you can have degradation of the seed or you could, or, and, and you need an arbitrary amount of energy to reproduce whatever is seeded uh, to some given definition, um, like however many digits of pi you want, that's how much in energy you're gonna have to put in to get that out of the seed. Um, uh, okay, cool. Uh, we have the discussion of the brain as an electrochemical computer. 
Um, just kind of some facts, uh, you know, just kind of blow, trying to blow your, your mind with like, Hey, you know, your brain has, is, has this wattage. Did you know that? Wow. Uh, like you, we can describe your brain in physicalist terms. Uh, um, okay. But then we get to this interesting part. Uh, now it's easier to think about the brain as a computer than to think about the electronic computer itself as some kind of brain. And I remember from when I was uh, doing my research on information society theory and sort of like early computing in the 50s, um, this was a really big discussion that was going on. The electronic brain, um, you know, it, it was really common to, to talk about computers in that way as brains. Um, so it was very much criticized for good reasons. Uh, the program computer it's, is itself not very brain-like, yet the typical modern computer configuration can be designed as an integral assemblage of specialized computers, and they can be arranged hierarchically. What was said about part one, it, what said in part one about hierarchies of command, which have already been seen in relation to management systems, is now very much to the point. We can certainly envision or envisage a central command axis inside the firm. Indeed, we can identify it in terms of men and procedures. If this were automated, we should have an analog of the spinal cord, collecting information and taking, uh, well, yeah, so like, yeah, he's, he's literally saying this is an analogy. This is an analog. Um, uh, collecting information and undertaking lower level action on the lateral command axis. The ascending information would eventually reach the firm's central computer where a part of the configuration would be needed to integrate the activities of all the branches and functions. This part of the configuration would be the analog of the brainstem, and there would be a cortical level part of the configuration in which, part, in which the role of consciousness is played by senior management. Between these two would come all the sorting, switching, and relaying associated with the uh, diencephalon and the basal ganglia. So what he's saying is like the computer in itself is not much like a brain, but if you combined uh, an architected uh, arrangement of computers, like, you know, subsystems uh, composing a whole computing system with a social dimension, then you probably have something that's like a brain. The, 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 the computer itself is not much like one. A program computer is not much like one. But if you add a social dimension into this arrangement, then you get something like a brain. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, there's just a wonderful kind of irony in that, that like you start out with this like, oh, the, 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 the computer is an electronic brain. It's like, no, 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 no. It's the other way around. The brain is an organic computer. <laughs> like that's the, the 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 kind of analogy allows itself to flip around, and it's like, oh, okay. We see that computation is a general feature of the world, and this thing here is the most complex computer that's ever been known, and it's fucking scary how good it is at doing that compared to this fucking IBM piece of shit that we have in the corner here. You know, right? So to sort of clarify that, like, if we think about like basic von Neumann machines, like von Neumann automata as computers uh those are not brains <laughs> right they're very very simple they're not brains uh but 
you can aggregate and create increasingly sophisticated computers that are like brains. Um, it's just, yeah, brains are at a different level of complexity than your any given computer. So it's not why it's not appropriate to say that computers are brains because there's just a mismatch there. Um, okay. Uh, all right. So then we get the sort of sketch. Uh, Jake, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just wondering about, um, like it just came into my head about um, cognition, not even necessarily just being in the brain and like talking about something not being a brain, um, like an assemblage of computers being a brain. Like it reminds me of like the whole story about situated embodied cognition and, <laughs> you know, whether a, an assemblage of computers maybe you could say that is embodied in the world in some way, more than you could say like a single computer sitting on its own in the corner of a room is embodied. Um, and then, yeah, so cognition is like more than, you know, the walnut. <laughs> right, yeah, that's definitely the way that uh, Buhr means it when he talks about brains, is it's not just the walnut, it's everything in the sensory system. Um Okay, uh, and, you know, that's where we're going to get to the brain of the firm. Um, but, well, literally right here. Uh, so <laughs> we have uh, the five-level hierarchy of systems. Uh, he does say this is an arbitrary uh, let number that he's come up with, uh, but he's basically has, like, a functional disagreement with the physiologist, the neurophysiologist of his time, saying, like, yeah, they might say there's like six, but from my standpoint of control theory, this looks like five. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of like physiological minutia here. Uh, the most, the thing that stood out the most to me was the thalamus. Um, his discussion of the thalamus here, but uh, the thalamus is not actually listed on figure 14 which is a, a curious omission. Uh, but uh, if, if we go back, you know, we can see, um, is, is this listed at all in the figure 13, the general layout? Not really, right? Um, so anyone, you know, uh, the sides of the, Diencephalon are the thalami, sometimes thought as the brain's switchboard. Uh, anyone want to like clarify where the thalamus falls in this this uh, this five step uh, diagram? Okay, it's time for Wikipedia, everyone. <laughs> Got to access external memory here. Here we go with the extended cognition, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. For anyone that wasn't familiar with that whole embodied and extended cognition thing, it's basically the idea that, a, like, say, for example, a spider kind of computes some of its com its uh, cognition via its web. That, like, it, it institutes computational kind of structures in the structure of its web, and the web does the thinking on its behalf, more or less. I mean, we do the sh same shit with notebooks and stuff, uh, or with Wikipedia in this case. So that, like... The, the, the cognition isn't really localized inside the walnut. That's the, the scary part of that, right? That like it's a much distributed phenomenon rather than being like 
uh, oh yeah, the, my thoughts are directly located in my head, you know? Yes. Uh, so to get to that question of the thalamus, if I'm reading this correctly, I believe control echelon four and three would be the thalamus. So it's the system three, four boundary, right? Yes. I believe that is what is being referred to there. Uh, third creed, go ahead. Just going to say that in his, in that paragraph, he includes it in the third echelon. He says okay. the three echelons is the die, the the die, the diencephalon with the thalami and basal ganglia. These three, third of these three echelons is the diencephalon with the thalami and basal ganglia. Okay. But isn't that in control echelon four on this diagram where it says diencephalon? Yeah. Is it different or did I read it wrong? Uh, let's see. Okay. The cord itself is the lowest. The medulla and pons are grouped together next. The third of these echelons, the third of these three echelons is the diencephalon with the thalami and ganglia. The third of these three so it's the third of the upper the of the third upper. of the middle three, which would be the fourth. This is yeah. uh, not the best writing, I have to say. Yeah, it's it's true. Uh, so that would yeah. count as the so, I mean, fourth. If we look at that, if we look at that, yeah, it would do, right? Because, like, in figure 14, um, like, the, the spinal column bit is system two. And then the M-Pons and MEDs are... Oh, uh, yeah, I see it It's now. control echelon three, right? That's system three. Yeah. I, I, and then I system four look is the diencephalon the, base. Yeah. I, I took a closer look at this brain diagram. And the thalamus, yes, should be in control echelon four. Okay, so the... The physiology... Yeah, the thalami attached to the diencephalon. Yeah, the, the, the physiology, the diagram, and the text match up. It is in control echelon four. Okay, uh, that, that was something I was very confused mm -hmm. about. Thanks for clearing that up. Um, okay. Um, then we have uh, the fifth level, which is the cortical level, um, he gets into this talk about how all the sensory nerves report to the thalamus. Everything that the cortex gets is sorted and switched through the diencephalon and the basal ganglia, our fourth level. In orthodox management talk, this level has nothing to do with command. In our model, it has everything to do with command. It lies smack on the vertical axis itself. This fact repays much reflection. After all, are not those very senior staff men and their officers commanders in disguise? What matters to the firm's top management is not so much the facts as the facts as presented. And the presentation chosen can govern the outcome of even the most important and well-considered decision. So he has this, this, this uh, example here from decision and control of the junior clerk and how they arrange the table determining the, the, the level five outcome. 
Uh, but I think that, you know, the obvious example that comes to mind here is, you know, we started out this year with Trump's uh, assassination of that uh, general, it was Soleimani, right? Um, and apparently the reason why this happened is because someone who is preparing a PowerPoint presentation for Trump's briefing um, thought that they needed an extra action item on the slide in order for it to have a pleasing aesthetic appearance. And so they put the assassination option on there uh, thinking that no one would actually choose that. And, and like, you, you know, so that, you know, the, 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 the system for people could be like, well, and of course, Mr. President, uh, there is this ridiculous option over here, the one you wouldn't choose. Uh, but nevertheless, it is on the slide. And, and Trump was like, yeah, I like that one. And then so were all of his like, you know, coterie of, of close uh, advisors. They're like, yeah, let's let's kill that guy. That sounds good. Uh, so very much what Beer is describing here. Uh, the, the decision is actually largely made by someone working with PowerPoint. Uh, Matt, go ahead. <clears throat> Then I, 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 I really like also um, uh, um, how um, he's not he's not using this language, but I think he's he also he's also getting into um, like the social division of labor versus the technical division of labor, and how you know like there are things that you know like 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 maybe it actually like in terms of like your experience of what you're doing, it seems like very different than management work. But like you know, you you are doing um uh, um uh 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 Clary again. You know, the the um uh, organizing for power piece um uh, posted um uh, a thing to me uh, yesterday of like um uh Elthus Air like talking about this and well, it was super, super interesting um uh and yeah like it it, it it is interesting like where the line is because like uh you know like you, you, like uh, sometimes you know like these um uh you know. These sort of organizing roles, you know, like are management in, in disguise, but also, you know, like the flip side is also true. Like I'm thinking of like project managers were like, you know, I've had some really, really helpful project managers, but like they have no authority. <laughs> like, it, like it actually is like management as, you know, uh, as a technical skill as opposed to like being a manager in terms of the social division of, of, of labor. And uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Marx was onto something. Uh, it's good to know. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's go to Jeremy and then Shane. Okay, I have a question because I'm not familiar with 1970s management theory. I, I don't know what the orthodox line staff dichotomy means. Does anyone know? Yeah, uh, it's essentially the idea that you have uh, line officers and staff officers uh, and never the two shall meet, right? That so the staff are are making general decisions, um, and the line are implementing those decisions and making sort of low level decisions. So it's based on the military, where you have um, line officers and then the, the the general staff in that old like French model of uh, military structure. Uh, where the general staff tends to make large decisions and, and and very strongly direct the entire military enterprise, whereas you can have something that's more like the American model, uh, I guess contemporarily, but also kind of historically, where that distinction is less strictly maintained, 
But it seems like that line staff distinction was really strongly implemented into management philosophy um, at the time that Buhr was working. Um, okay, uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I think this stuff here is really, really interesting, right? Because it's um, it, we often we usually think of like the the cortex, right, like level five, as being where all the decision is is going on. But in in Beer's kind of working out of this system, system four, the middle brain, is this like ultra dense, complex network matrix of decision making, and that's where a lot of the real smarts are. Um, and it's interesting that we get that, that's often obscured to us, though. Like the when when my midbrain lights up and says I want to get McDonald's, I, I think I as a subject made that decision, right? Like, but not really. It's my mid, midbrain that did it. And say, same with organizational stuff, right? Like we we think that kind of like cephalic bias again, right? Of thinking of like the CEO as being the person who makes the decisions. But really, it's this kind of fairly obscure middle layer of um, of folks who are kind of making a lot of the decision that actually matters, right? Um, it's very reminiscent of, of Yes Minister, the, the TV show, where the um, the ministers are kind of side characters, and it's the uh, the permanent secretaries to the departments are the real power. Like, but they're 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 hidden behind this firewall of these disposable goons um, that go to Parliament, right? Like, the, the real decision making happens behind the scenes in this kind of deeply tangled network. Yeah, uh, the, 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 the deputy like, ministers, right? Deputy ministers, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's re interesting how decision is obscured, right? Like, I mean, even the, the Suleimani example is, is really on point there. Like, the the actual decision-making there is weirder than you'd expect, right? But, like, I think we like to believe that, no, Trump as a subject decided this course of action was appropriate because of good reasons. Like, this is this kind of rationalist kind of bias. But, no, it's just it's just this fucked up kind of accident. Of, like, the real decision was putting the bullet point on the PowerPoint side. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know... Trump is maybe a deficient system five and can't separate the signal from the noise. And so made a uh, rather erratic decision. I don't know if it was a good one from the perspective of the American state. Seems to have honestly worked out pretty well for America. Uh, but, uh, you know, definitely goes against what system four had envisioned for what would happen yeah. in that meeting. Uh, uh, okay, um, Jake and then Lauren. Uh, yeah, it's just a kind of comment on a kind of where I have in terms of the way, not anyone here, but some people might interpret some of the words he has. Um, like the second paragraph on page 92, he talks about like voluntary action being something that comes from like higher level brain structures in some kind of sense. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> I, when I read that, it's maybe not exactly what he meant, but I, I imagined like the management, like, Ooh, like perking up or like, you know, I can imagine certain left groupings taking that in a certain kind of way as well. Um, and it also made me think of like, um, in your more conversation, how like there's nature and then there's, you know, um, human society, like in terms of like voluntary action being human birth and then, you know, the kinds of thing people that are cast out into, uh, nature, right. I can imagine that happening within like, a an organization, maybe like a communist party, um, <laughs> you know, where the central committee has like, does like the voluntary decisions and guides the sheep and they just do all their activist work or whatever. Um, right. It's just that, you know, it's easily misread uh, as basically being what you describe, which is the line staff model. Um, that's, that's what that model is, right? The voluntary actions taken by the general staff, the rest of people execute it. 
Um, uh, but that that's of course not what Beer's describing here. Uh, oh, no, no, I think, absolutely I think he's not. just describing in like kind of like physiological terms, like how brain scientists might talk about voluntary action. But it's yeah. Uh, um, Lauren, go ahead. Um, I just touch on Shane's point. Uh, what that brought to mind was when that decision this decision making between systems breaks down. Because like I used to work in as a policy analyst in national government, advising the minister for the environment and. There were like at least two or three times where our minister, who was like his job, would say like, "Oh, I want advice on X," and we'd be like, "No, that's silly. It'll get um, outed into the public. You'll look terrible. Like we're not doing that." And then um, we'd, of course, like friend and very polite policy language, would send that back to him, and then he'd just go and ask another team. <laughs> so like, it just created so much inefficiency when th- that decision making was very unclear like sort of between systems and you had the yeah authority to do it and not and stuff it's uh yeah system five is floating off in its own direction um okay uh and matt yeah i mean just on uh the idea of uh you know like a like where does like a um you know like like a party um, uh, um, stand in relation to the VSM. Yeah, I, I think there is something a little bit of a core of, of something there, just because, like, so you know, like uh, the, uh, the idea that you know, you, it, without you know, some sort of um, organization kind of keeping them, uh, you know, keeping their eye on the ball. Um, uh, you know, unions probably will just develop into like a, a you know trade union consciousness and just get stuck into system two stuff and system one stuff and just you know and 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 then you know get the get the rug pulled out from under them like American unions in the seventies versus like you know when you actually do have like a a party acting as like a system three or four you know like and coordinating uh, uh, efforts between different groups you know like that's why some groups seized power and some groups didn't I mean obviously I think you know Bolsheviks are probably a little uh, incomplete there but you know like. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think uh, uh, that, that, that there's, a, there's a little bit of a, of a nugget to something to that structure. Yeah, uh, I think the basic point about uh, trade union consciousness is is pretty well taken um, because the function of a trade union, like, you know, to see this in the Russian Revolution and the debates that were happening there is like, well... The workers as at the trade union level don't really give a shit about revolution. Initially, there's a lot of propagandizing that happens. And then um, that starts to like diffuse through the trade union organizations and the union of unions and that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, I definitely uh, see that point. I mean, I don't know how exactly relevant it is to the American situation because there were a lot of Leninist organizations that were very militant and active in the seventies um, that were trying to do the thing that was, that we're describing here. Uh, but overall uh, didn't take control of the, uh, the union movement and were basically crushed. So I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's uh that's a specific example. Uh, did Shane disappear? No, Shane has just turned off their video. Uh, I think you had something to say, say there, Shane? I did, and then my fucking browser kind of crashed, uh, but I'm back. Um, yeah, I think I think it was kind of riffing on, I think, Matt's point and kind of uh, emphasizing a thing here in Beer that he's, he's kind of 
drawing attention to this kind of a system four thing as being extremely important and the ways in which it's important can often be obscured. And I think for a lot of organizations, it's the presence or absence of strong system four that kind of makes or breaks it. Um, that like a, a, an organization might be operationally fairly okay in all those other ways, but have a completely lobotomized midbrain. And uh, that's, that's the thing that's probably going to kill it in a lot of ways, right? Um, it's an extremely important part of the system. It's, it's much more important than level five. Level five is kind of a sideshow that just kind of sets a very general policy of like, you know, steer this way or steer that way. All the, all the real action is in three and four. Um, that's, that's where you need to be, need to be paying a lot of attention. The, the cortex is kind of, nah, who cares? It's down in the midbrain where the, the cool stuff's going on. Right. It may, may be the case that like, you know, levels one to three are maybe a little bit easier to articulate. And level four is quite difficult to articulate well. Um, because it's not yeah, yeah, so much that yeah. level four is more important than those lower levels, but what you're saying where it's like an organization that's really atrophied level four fails is, is, a, is a good point. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it's, it's like, you don't often see that many good level fours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe that's, that's the, the, the point, uh, there. I think the difference really is that like level four is where the dynamism and the kind of interaction with the future is, right? That like, you yeah. can, you can get levels one through three fairly, fairly right. And yeah. it's like, well, you're, 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 you're on, on easy street for the moment. Right. But if, if you don't have a good system for, if you don't have this like dynamically adaptive, predictive machinery, that's capable of making all these crazy decisions, then it's, it's going to fall apart eventually. Well, because uh, you're just subject to environmental mm-hmm. vagaries to some level. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next, the next wave that comes along, will just smash you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Sorry about that. The dog needed to go out. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> beer warns that I think in heart of enterprise beer warns that a lot of, corporations and large firms don't have a conscious system for at all. And he says that when that happens, the big risk is that five will drop into three and you'll just have a one, two, three system and nothing else, which he calls a decerberated cat. The the idea that you can take a cat and sever its cerebrum from the rest of the cat and the cat will still have all of its autonomic functions working, but it's effectively a dead cat. And so he basically says that without a system four, either system five flies off and just does something else, or it just falls into system three, takes on the system three functionality and just gives up on system five functionality, killing any chances of system four functionality when doing it. Um, when I was at Metaforum, one of the people I met there, Ian uh, Kendrick was his name. He, um, he says that for him, the single most important thing in his analysis of systems is to figure out what the 3-4 balance is, that he thinks that's the single most important task and that everything falls into place when you figure out what three, how 3 and 4 balance each other. Because three is really the integral part of the one, two, three cycle. 
and four is the integral part of the three, four, five cycle. And that both those cycles need to be in harmony with each other. And that's the three, four balance. It's the trickiest thing, but it's the most important. Right. Uh, you know, what you're describing there in terms of the decerebrate cat, you know, is also like people who are brain dead. Uh, and it's quite interesting that like in our society, uh, brain death has become an increasingly important medical question uh, because we are keeping, uh, we are better able to keep people alive, right, uh, than we used to be able to. And brain death wasn't really much of a concern uh, in previous decades, but because we're better able to keep people alive, um, it's become an, an enormous ethical question in medical ethics uh, whether a brain dead person should be uh, allowed to die or not. Um, and I think that that kind of has an analogy in a sense with what we have in the kind of like remnants or refuse of Keynesianism, where uh, we have uh, many uh, so-called zombie corporations uh, that are being kept alive on life support. Uh, they have no system for functionally, uh, and they're just kind of there to keep their stakeholders going. Uh, so it's very interesting that the medical situation uh, sort of parallels the social situation in some ways in terms of like the body politic and then the human body. Uh, 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 Shane and then Lauren. Mm -hmm. Just a very, a very sort of uh, maybe a throwaway kind of question, but like think of, you know, socialist politics in the 20th century. How many of those institutions were basically in that kind of decerebrated state? Um, and eventually keeled over because that's what a decerebrated organism is going to do? Or, um, you know, how many of our kind of institutions right now are basically in that state that they just, they don't have that, that layer at all? Like they, they barely have functioning system ones uh, and all that kind of stuff up the spinal columns missing. Um, and is, is that perhaps the biggest kind of like meta challenge of resurrecting or re restarting a lot of a major mass socialist politics is um, re-enervating these kinds of like systems all the way up the column? Uh, and what do we need to be on guard against? You know, like a you know union union ideology or whatever, where which would kind of forbid us from actually kind of having those kind of like deeply integral kind of loops at that high level. Um, you know, it's it's worth pondering, right? Like, what 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 state are we actually in? You know, is is the DSA actually a kind of viable system, or is it perhaps you know in somewhere near this decerebrated thing? It's, it's worth juggling, you know. Right. Um, you know, I am working with many. Uh, futures people uh, right now uh, with sort of like futurists and futures practitioners and, you know, sustainability people and, you know, green transition, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that what Jeremy was saying about uh, system five collapsing into system three without the presence of system four describes very well what's happening in Alberta right now, where, where uh, Lauren and I are living, uh, because um, the total lack of foresight 
that was like, you know, be able to develop and ex- be exercised in the government here has now led to a catastrophic situation where it's like the environment's changed. There's no plan. There's no, no adaptation capability. The only thing we could do is like a mewling baby uh, or, you know, like a, 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 a little birdlet uh, just, you know, chirp, chirp and ask for money from the federal government. Uh, because uh, we we don't have any capacity to do anything other than maintain uh, basic bodily functions and ingest, uh, you know, uh, federal dollars. So um, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, like, th- th- but that, that speaks to me a bit about why it's so hard to do futuring here because, like, the System 5 has collapsed into System 3, and so it's kind of become... Uh, hyper stable in a very kind of like amoeba sort of like level, you know, it's it's not really operating at a higher level of cerebration. Uh, so it, trying to introduce that into the the system is like, well, where does that plug in? Like, we can't, we don't have a plug for that. Um, uh, okay, <laughs> Laura, go ahead, and then uh, Jake. Yeah, uh, just to sort of go back to the dead dead cat <laughs> um, uh, scenario. Um, and um, this is where I'm sort of sense checking, but to me that sounds like times in my life where either I've said this or other people in my company have said this where they've gone, if I quit, we're fucked. Like, <laughs> um, if like, in, in the sense that they are like the system, <laughs> like if they go, then yeah, you've lost your system four or three and like those sort of crucial components because it's so, uh, in, oh, um, What's what I'm looking for? Kind of like that informal process that you've done to compensate for the fact that you don't have like a system three or four. Yeah, it's like a really maladaptive system four that's very, very fragile and specialized. Um, you know, whereas our brains have like lots of subsystems that interact to form system four. If you just had like a single processor, a single organ that did that, you have one point of failure and then. Oh, it like it, it means that the it's like it both means that you have one point of failure, but it also means that that system is unlikely to actually like divide itself up into anything else because it's an organ. Um, you know, it's, it's a body with organs um, uh, in the worst sense. Of it's body with an organ. <laughs> uh, OK, uh, Jake, go ahead. Yeah, as for socialist politics in the 21st century, um, I sort of imagine it as less of an issue of which systems are in place and more of like the boundaries of the system. Um, like like some things just aren't in the system. Like um, So like a lot of parties, like they're each their own individual system for one, um, not to even start on like the whole fact that the labor movement isn't set inside the system. Um, and like, should that come first? That's a whole different thing, right? Um, but... Some socialist parties to me almost seem like they're like the system four, like all they do is like simulate a system four that isn't really a system four. Like all they're doing is thinking about the future in this kind of kind of fucked up projecting a crappy past onto the future that doesn't really even make any kind of consistent sort of sense. Um, and they're so messed up internally that like the system two and three don't even seem to be working that well. <laughs> And it just really kind of seems like they're trying to do a system for 
without even really having like the boundaries of the system right, the system two right, the system three right, or or anything really. Um, it's just like yeah, role playing a nice system for in the context of just like a desolated organization. Otherwise, yeah, uh, like. Uh, anyway, I could get into that, but let's let's keep going. Uh, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, not to go into rabbit hole there. But. So two observations. One from the heart of enterprise. Beer was talking about system two in this case, but it applies equally to system four. I mean, Beer basically thinks that systems two and four are the ones most likely to be ignored by the corporation. And he gives an example of a corporation system two being a Thursday morning coffee that a bunch of the different foremen on the shop floor go to along with the logistics people and a few other people. And at that coffee, they discuss what's going on with everything. And um, this one company was like, you shouldn't be having coffee on Thursday. You all take too long. And then the entire corporation collapses because absolutely essential functioning was happening at that coffee. And when they banned the coffee, the whole thing fell apart. For the and, want uh, of a coffee break. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because no one was doing that. You know, no one was doing that formally and they were, were doing it informally. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, when we think, or not we, but when in the public perception, when you think of who the innovators are, what the real system fours are, you get these like tech, uh, Silicon Valley tech bro ideas. And a lot of them are just batshit insane. And part of it is that system four depends upon an accurate model of the entire system. And if it doesn't have an accurate model of the entire system, it's just going to spout nonsense. And, you know, you think about like these, you know, Y Combinator meetings where they're like, you know, it'd be great if there weren't bodegas anymore. And instead of neighborhood shops, we had a, a smartphone app. And you're like, that's just madness. And even if it worked, you'd ruin the local economy, <laughs> you know, and the local culture. It's like, the, the models that they have are based on being young, male, incredibly spoiled, incredibly upper middle class, incredibly cerebral, and then just project that onto the entire universe. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, that's... That's definitely a very good point. And something that's like a real danger in, in, in futures as well, like in futuring, you know, I think a lot of futures work comes out of like, you know, more like action research and this kind of thing. It's it's less like Ayn Rand, you know, libertarianism nonsense. Uh, but there's a there's a lot of tendency to do futuring and do future scenarios without a lot of connection to the understanding of the organization uh, and then, you know, subsequently producing something that's of no real value, even though the methods of the future and process itself were sound. Um, uh, okay. Uh, Shane. And then I think we're going to have to wrap because we're coming up on time here. Mm -hmm. 
we very are. Um, yeah, just on the, the thing about like the, the system two being, um, you know, implemented by, by accident in these kind of like informal kind of networks amongst uh, layers of production, which is often how things turn out, right? And like um, management comes in and just severs it, or even they just, they move one department to a different building and suddenly this like lateral cross connection is accidentally caught. And then a year later, the company's dead and they don't even realize what the fuck happened. Think about this uh, coronavirus fucking lockdown shit, right? And so many, uh, like, uh, not, not just companies, but, like, institutions and all sorts of stuff have now had their kind of nervous systems completely obliterated because all of that informal cross-connective stuff that was happening just in person by accident, water cooler conversations and stuff is completely gone. Um, and uh, yeah, because you, if you don't have a formalized idea of what your system, too, is, that all that, all that stuff is just by accident. Like, it's going to be there, but it's accidental. Um, the, the promise of this kind of, um, and the same goes for like left organizing, organizing as well, right? Like the, the promise of this kind of modeling is that we could understand what that stuff actually is and actually guard it or cultivate it or grow a better version of it. Whereas if you don't know, if you don't even understand that your organization has its own nervous system, these things are going to happen to you. And it's like, well, how the fuck did this thing die? What happened? So we don't understand. Well, of course, like you could, nobody could possibly understand without first having an understanding of the organization as an organism. Uh, if you lose your fucking nervous system, you're kind of done for uh, at that level, right? Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, just before we wrap, I did like uh, this little dig at the Catholic Church. Um, uh, <laughs> in the Catholic Church, the activity of the Roman Curia has likewise been seen to play a major part in command. Although command is supposedly vested in a synod of bishops working to an infallible commander. Um, so, you know, I guess this is maybe what after Buhr has left Catholicism is, is you know, no, he's still he's still a Catholic at this time. So he's just he's like we're in the reform mode more so than in the uh, post Catholic mode. OK, he, Good to yeah, know. he stayed a Catholic his whole life. Oh, did he? Interesting. Yeah. He converted to Catholicism to marry his first wife and then just stayed in it. Okay. Well, that's how it happens for many. Um, yeah. you, you just stay in it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> well, I, I would be interested to read more about that for sure. Because um, I think he was certainly a rather heterodox Catholic. Um uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, next time we're going to be talking about patterns. Um, we're getting to what's the autonomy. We're talking about autonomy next chapter. That's a good topic. Let's let's talk about that. So uh, we'll be reading that chapter for next time. Uh, thanks for participating, everybody. Um, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thank Bye. you, everyone.